find a green market, a statue of Gandhi, and a sculpture that blows smoke. Union Square, of course. The area has seen its fair share of ups and downs through the years, and now it's definitely on the up, with a new pedestrian plaza, bike lane, and visitors galore. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. At some point, you may have wondered where the name Union Square came from. It's the place of the union of two major roads, Bloomingdale Road, now Broadway, and Bowery Road, now 4th Avenue. Today, it's much more than just an intersection. In fact, our first guest says Union Square has its own universe. James Gabe is a professional writer and photographer and the author of The Universe of Union Square, a book that explores the people, places, and 300-year history of Union Square and its surroundings. James is no stranger to Union Square. He's lived there for decades, and he was a longtime president of the Union Square Partnership. James, welcome to Cityscape. Hi. Glad to be here. First of all, how do you define Union Square's universe? Well, the universe is about a six-block radius from the square, and that would be uh, six north-south blocks as opposed to avenue blocks east-west. So it's three east-west, six north-south. It's a little less than a half a mile radius of the square. Now, is this your own definition? Yes, Only my own. How did you come up with that definition of Union Square, the universe of? In doing the research, we found that a lot of the events and personalities fed into Union Square, and it's a very heterogeneous place. It's not one thing or another. It's many different things, were found in that universe. And to tell the story completely, it made sense to make this book about a universe as opposed to just a square. Now, you have a long history in Union Square yourself, right? Ooh, I guess it is long. Uh, We've lived there now for about 22 years. My mom lived there a good portion of her adult life, and our business is a block from the square. What kind of business is that? This is a communications company. We do public relations, marketing, and publishing. You write in the book that your children, Benjamin and Bridget, tripped the light fantastic in Union Square since birth. How do you think that has shaped them as individuals? They have a sense of growing up in an area of New York City that is in perpetual motion, a very exciting place, a very dynamic place. And whenever we travel anywhere else, as much as they appreciate it, they always have this sense of coming from a place that is very unusual and that is a part of their personality. The Velvet Underground song, Run, 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 says, going to take a walk down Union Square. You never know who you're going to find there. The song is circa 1967, but that, of course, still holds very true today. Probably even more so now than then, because in 67, uh, that area was in decline still. It had been, in uh, at that point, about a 60-year decline. And for the past 20 years, it's been reemerging, and it's now so vibrant probably as vibrant as it was a century ago when Union Square was at its peak. Union Square Park was once called Needle Park because all of the drug activity that took place there. What would you attribute the turnaround to? There were several things. Uh, I'm going to start with the city itself. The city wanted to get into the park something that would draw people in and help to drive the drug dealers and uh, other unlawful people out. So they attracted the first real green market in the city, 
to Union Square. The first iteration of the Green Market had been uptown on the Upper East Side, but it was very small. They gave the founders of the Green Market, uh, Barry Benepe and others, the opportunity to have a very large space in this park that nobody else wanted because of all the unlawfulness. They didn't want to come at that time. As the story is told, as it's related in the DVD, which is part of the book, they didn't want to come here, come there, I should say, because of, of uh, they feared would be nobody would, would want to show it. No, they wouldn't be able to get vendors to come. They wouldn't be able to get people to come in and buy stuff from the vendors. It didn't turn out that way, of course. The city was right. That was the first big thing. The second big event was attracting Zeckendorf Towers, which at that time was one of the largest sort of upscale condo developments in the city. They gave some tax exemptions to Zeckendorf. He came in, built this, brought in a large middle, upper middle class uh, clientele to the area, largely youthful, and that started to attract other developers businesses, and the rest is history. It sort of took off from those two events. Union Square, though, also saw the creation of a bid, the first business improvement district in the nation, right, which you headed. That's right. And uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, Yes, the first business improvement district was formed in the late 80s. And uh, it's since been replicated all over the city and all over the country. And that did a lot to marshal the resources of the area. People who had been there for a while, new people coming in toward programs that would help bring the, the area back and also to uh, help those uh, businesses that were there develop more of a sense of how they could market in an area that was still working very hard to attract people. Hard to imagine today, but a farmhouse once stood in Union Square. The uh, land was all privately held. It was originally, I shouldn't say originally, it was originally pasture and farmland and grazing land for the Lenape Nation, Lenape Native Americans. It was purchased by Peter Stuyvesant, who was the one of the first governors of the Dutch settlement of uh, New Amsterdam. And his farm extended over to Union Square. It was sort of the western fringe of it. And he had slaves working there. It's hard to believe, but in that day, that was the private land, and most of the land in that area was owned by very wealthy Dutch, and later the English. Getting back to the park, didn't Olmsted and Vox, the creators of Central Park, also have a hand in the creation of Union Square Park? They came in in the late uh, late 19th century, about oh, 1870s. They were asked to redesign the park, and what they did is something very important, actually. They looked at it. And they saw it was becoming a flashpoint, Union Square, between the very wealthy and the immigrant population moving in, the German, the Irish, the Jews, the Italians. And there was increasing tension about the use of the park. So they created in the north end of a park what was called the muster ground. And this is where the demonstrations were held from then on. That was their big contribution. They opened the park up. They turned it into an oval. Many of the uh, uh, aspects of the park we see today were due to them. But they took what had been a very Londonish uh, genteel park and turned it into a people's park. Union Square, as you mentioned, through the years has been the site of numerous public demonstrations. What stands out to you as the most historic? I think the most important was what happened after the fall of Fort Sumter. When the commander, Anderson, came up to Union Square, they took the flag, the tattered American flag that that had been bruised, if you will, by Confederate fire, put it into the arms of the George Washington statue, which is the oldest public statue in New York City, 
and about they you know room you know legend has it somewhere between 100 250,000 people gathered which would have made that the largest public gathering in America to that time and that set the stage for Union Square as the place of public protest. Union Square played a leading role in the modern US labor movement. What is the most dramatic aspect of that history would you say? 1882 when the first Labor Day celebration was held. It was actually a parade. They marched to the park. Everybody picnicked, had a good good time, and it was a very ethnic immigrant celebration. You had German um, musicians, Irish singers, you had Italians and Jews all doing their thing and creating a wonderful celebration. Their point was to create a Labor Day, and within 10 years they had that. They actually had a, a holiday called Labor Day. Didn't anarchist and orator Emma Goldman also lead labor rallies in Union Square? Emma Goldman is sort of my personal heroine of this story, if you will. Here's somebody who had the courage 30 years before women or 20 years before women even got the vote to go into Union Square and lead demonstrations largely of men. She was probably one of the first maybe the only women women at that time who could lead demonstrations, huge demonstrations of men uh, calling for labor, labor rights, calling for, as we approach World War I, calling for uh, um, pacifist kind of causes, that sort of thing. She lived about a block off the square. Quite a personality. By the way, she was, she was actually um, deported to, to the Soviet Union in, in, eight, in, seven, in 1919. Another remarkable woman that I actually didn't know had a connection to the Union Square universe is Helen Keller. Helen Keller is very closely involved to, uh, to Union Square. Her, the headquarters of the uh, American Federation for the Blind is a block off, or was a block off. It has since moved. And she was one of the founders of that. And for close to 40 years, she had her offices there. She was very much a personality of that area. Remarkable person. Today, Times Square, of course, and theater are synonymous. But there was a time when Union Square was theater central in New York City. You talk a lot about that in your book. Truth be known, the term Broadway began there, where Broadway intersected with 14th Street was the original Broadway, and that's what people called it. And starting with the Academy of Music, which was the first dedicated opera house in America, starting in the late 1850s and and right up through the turn of the century into the 20th century, theaters were springing up all over the place. It was the first center of entertainment in America. What would you say were among the most notable performances in this area? Well, one thing that happened there that, that I... I think is very important was the New York Philharmonic was actually founded there and first performed there in Steinway Hall. Steinway Hall was founded by William Steinway of the Piano Company. That's where he first had his showrooms. That was probably one of the more significant, enduring things that happened because many of the other performances, many of the other venues passed on. But the most important event that still impacts American entertainment is the invention of vaudeville which happened in Union Square. Tony Pastor, who ran a, a, a brash kind of um, sort of lowbrow theater operation that attracted mostly men, was wondering how he could make more money at doing this sort of thing, and he figured out the best way to do it is to attract the wealthy people who were going to all the stores there. So he came up with this approach that was more genteel, and it worked. And uh, he created the most popular entertainment 
for the next half century, which is what vaudeville was. So it all started right there. Who are among the most notable performers who lived and worked in and around Union Square through the years? Okay, so when we we think about who are the people who came to Union Square to perform, all right, it was the center of entertainment in America, so all of the noted performers came to came there. You had Jacob and Stella Adler. You had Ethel and John Barrymore, Jack Benny, Sarah Bernhardt, George Burns, George M. Cohen. The list goes on and on. They were all there. Helen Hayes, uh, Fritz Kreisler. In that day, they were the rock stars. And then it went on to more contemporary types of performers, people we know very well today. Tony Bennett, people like the Rolling, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Buddy Holly, Jefferson Airplane, Billy Joel, They all performed, sometimes in the theaters that had been converted to more contemporary use, and sometimes to studios that had sprung up as the older theaters closed down. But everybody went there. In fact, one of the performers said at one point it was one of the toughest toughest places to be a performer because that's where New Yorkers went, like Broadway now, and there were high expectations. And you met them or you were booed off the stage. That's the way it was. What's the deal with the metronome sculpture? That's the sculpture that blows smoke out of it in Union Square. Well, it's a sculpture. It's one of the largest um, uh, public outdoor sculptures in the city. It was also one of the most expensive. It cost about $3 million to make. And it's a sculpture that's so big, you can see it all the way up on 42nd Street from Grand Central. If you look down Park Avenue, you see the smoke coming out. The actual description or explanation of what it is is subject to interpretation. I think the most interesting thing about it is that it stops people in their tracks. When they notice it's there, they stand, they look up, and their mouths drop, and they say, what on earth is that? The artists themselves have described it, and their descriptions have varied at various times. Uh, I won't attempt to relate how they put it, but it, it represents different pieces of the city. If you look at it closely, there's actually a replica of the hand from the George Washington statue in Union Square Park right across the street. The smoke is supposed to, to represent the activity that goes on underground the in the subway system. There's a whole subterranean world beneath Union Square, and it bubbles up. And it bubbles up with people coming out. Well, they use smoke. They have a clock that counts down the time to New Year's, and that counts up the time to New Year's. What that actually means and how it works, subject to interpretation. And they also have a moon that evolves. So when you look up at the sky and you see the phases of the moon, they're replicating that. All of this is on this thing, and it's really, it's got probably 20 pieces to it, and it's huge, and putting it all together, perhaps people who are a lot more Adept at visual interpretation can handle than I can. But I will say this. It does still to this day, it's been up there now over 10 years, create the kind of interest factor that is very much a part of the personality of of Union Square. And as you mentioned, the book comes with a companion DVD. You interviewed countless people, city officials, community activists, business leaders, artists, a whole bunch of other people. Who was the most interesting character that you sat down with? You know, there were so many interviews that I enjoyed so much. One that I particularly appreciated was with Reverend Billy. Reverend Billy is um, is a very unique creature in our city, somebody who carries on the torch from the 1960s, I think, in terms of demonstrating for certain issues that are important to him, particularly those related to public expression. And uh, he uh, was very nice to grant an interview. He doesn't do that very often. 
and we had a real good time together. But many of the other interviews, particularly with, with clergy people, uh, Father Joe from uh, San Francis Xavier, that was a wonderful interview. Of, of He was talking about uh, how the church had been uh, involved during the AIDS epidemic in, in helping pull people in and healing them and becoming a place of refuge for them. That was very meaningful for me to hear. Jim Gabe, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. I really have enjoyed this. That was James Gabe, author of The Universe of Union Square. My name is Grace DiLorenzo, and Union Square means to me a place that I can relax in between running between work and shopping and going home at the end of the day and meeting friends. My name is Mark Rosenberg, and I think Union Square is uh, a nice place to hang out for lunchtime. It's gotten a lot better since they did the, the uh, remodel and uh, put all new sidewalks and pavement and more trees. So it's nice because it's right in the heart of the city, but you have the farmer's market and all the comings and goings and great place just to sit and relax and have lunch. Hi, my name is Gina Nicolosi, and Union Square represents peace of mind to me. I'm very busy. I love to come here, sit, relax. It's relatively quiet for Manhattan. And as you can see, I bring my magazines, books, a cup of coffee, and I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm Wendell Earl. It has a history to it, personal history to me. I'm Union Square. So I come down here, and um, I advertise my design, which is a very casual New York avant-garde Indian wear or um, hippie wear or psycho wear or, or uh, just outer wear or artistic wear. This is a multiple color outfit. A man, first of all, in a dress, skirt, quilt, kilt, and a fascinating loincloth made of sleeves, decorated and accentuated with scarves, and just color. A man of color from head to toe. It represents me. It represents anything a New Yorker can think about. That's a lot. Between love and peace and war and hate and everything. It makes everybody feel spectacular. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. One of the more popular events at Union Square is the Green Market. It's open four days a week and runs year-round. With more than 140 vendors, you can expect to find anything from just-picked fruits and vegetables to an assortment of breads, cheeses, ciders, and even maple syrup. My name is Stuart Borowski, and I'm working at my farm stand. It's called Greener Pastures. We're here at Union Square Green Market. Okay, uh, two pounds of the uh, sunflower. We sell uh, the greens that we grow. We grow them indoors. They're basically wheatgrass and also certain uh, sprouts that we grow for about a week, like sunflowers, buckwheat, different salads. What is better if you cut it fresh? It would be better if they cut it fresh. And on on the other hand, I'm feeling like if you're going straight back to the island. Hi, my name is Michelle Bulich, and I'm with Bulich Mushroom Company. We are the only mushroom farm left in New York State, so we come down and sell five different variety mushrooms. My husband's family started here in 1985, I believe, so we've been coming down a long time. I have great customers. I think we have the best customers. Some of them have known my kids since they were born, and uh, I know their families. I have customers that, have, that take my kids to the bookstore and read books, and it's very personal. It's really nice. I, we're giving them a great product, as is a lot of these farmers, and um, it gets them a chance to really get to know the farm, the farmers, how things are done, and I think they appreciate the food more. 
You don't have butter. <laughs> we actually can't have like spreads. We get that question all the time, but it's prepared. My name is Sophie Vranian. I am the market operations manager for Cayuga Pure Organics. Our farm grows organic wheat and beans, and then they also have a mill, so they make flour, or they mill flour from the wheat. I think you're really lucky if you're able to live in New York City and work outside and work around amazing food and farms. My name's Andrew Byers, and I work with Eve Cidery, and we make traditional hard ciders and fruit wines from fruit that we grow in upstate New York. The diversity of the other vendors, I think, draws in a, a lot more people so that people can like really do their shopping here, um, and that's pretty neat. I'm a shameless flirt. Uh, I, I do my best to sell beautiful hard cider to everyone that wants to try it. And since most people don't know too much about apple wines, I tend to taste a lot, which means a lot of talking and a lot of explaining, kind of a lot of convincing and letting people know that they do really like this. Um, you get spicy folk out here that come up with a lot of attitude, and it's fun to kind of bounce back at them a little bit. My name's Anika Pyle, and I'm a green market supervisor for Hopper Kitchen. We sell, you know, multigrain loaves, you know, rustic French loaves, and then we also incorporate recipes from the women we hire. We're a nonprofit job skills training program. We hire foreign-born women and put them through a training program, and they learn artisan bread baking skills, but they also learn each other's recipes. So women from Morocco bring their recipes, women from Mexico bring their recipes, and um, they take paid ESL classes in addition to what they do in the kitchen. I have a lot of regulars who I know on first-name basis. I know what they order. Um, I think that that's really indicative of the green market in general, is that a lot of people come back to you, they know what day you're here, and they follow you. So, I don't know, I think that we have a really great relationship with our customers. Goodbye, ladies. Thank you. We'll see you again. My name is Andrew Cote. I'm a beekeeper. I'm selling honey at Union Square on Wednesdays. I've been keeping bees since I was a child with my father, who's also here, Norm. We're able to interact with people from all over the world and uh, share with them this uh, wonderful product that is produced right here in New York City. Hi, my name is Colin Smith, and I am selling pretzels. Alrighty, how much are the pretzels? So depending on what pretzel it is. Think what size? Oh, what size? How much is this one? It's half Can I taste one before I buy it? This way I'll know what I'm dealing with. That's good. That's no joke. The Green Market is located at Union Square West at 15th Street to 17th Street at Park South. It's open year-round on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. The Green Market's vendors are an outspoken bunch, but there are some permanent residents of Union Square that won't say a word. I'm talking about the many statues scattered throughout the park. You can find several statues, including Gandhi in his very own garden and George Washington on a rearing horse. Okay, uh, I'm Cal Snyder. Uh, I'm a cultural historian in New York. Um, My primary interest is in war memorials and monuments of the city, and I'm Uh, involved in doing walking tours and gallery talks and so forth for the New York Historical Society. Here we are, Cal, at Union Square. We are standing under an equestrian statue of George Washington. How long has this statue been here at Union Square? This is a work of 1856. Uh, It's a bronze equestrian statue of George Washington. It was the first bronze sculpture uh, produced in the United States by Henry Kirk Brown and uh, his uh, studio assistant, J.Q.A. Ward, uh, who later went on to become one of the most important bronze sculptors in the American bronze renaissance. 
Is there any significance to the location here at Union Square? Oh, yes. And I mean, this is one of the few statues in the city that is actually where it belongs. It's a historical site. This is the very place where uh, George Washington was greeted by uh, grateful New Yorkers uh, on the day that the British evacuated New York in 1783. Uh, he was riding down from the north end of Manhattan at the head of his troops, and they came north to meet him here. This was a natural meeting point. It was the juncture uh, of the Albany Post Road and the Boston Post Road. Um, and uh, he, uh, they came here, they greeted him, and this is where they put the statue to commemorate that moment. Well, Cal, there's also another Revolutionary War figure here at Union Square Park besides Washington, and that is Lafayette. Well, at least a statue of him anyway. That's right, it's Lafayette, um, who's known as the French Founding Father. It was placed here uh, in 1876, a very significant year, the year of the America, the first year of the American uh, centennial. Um, it was produced in France uh, by Bartoli, who we know better as the, as the sculptor of uh, the Statue of Liberty. Um, it's one of two Lafayettes that he produced for New York. The other is in Morningside Park uh, in Upper Manhattan. Uh, Lafayette um, is really... In today, it, for today, for today's Americans, the uns, unsung hero of the American Revolution. Uh, I often say to people that without Lafayette, there may never have been an American Revolution, or even in America as we know it today. Um, when he arrived, uh, his heart inflamed by the vision of liberty that Washington and Jefferson and the others had created here, and who had started the revolution against Britain to overthrow the power of kings. And he brought with him the one thing, not only military expertise and a kind of uh, natural instinct for what heroes required, but he brought with him, of course, an enormous wealth. Uh, and it was this wealth, as well as Lafayette's work on behalf of the revolution in France, uh, that not only saved Washington, who was at Valley Forge in the darkest days of the revolution when Lafayette arrived, but he, of course, in, in the end, persuaded the French to send the fleet, which entrapped Cornwallis at Yorktown, uh, and saved the revolution. I want to walk a little bit further into the park and get a closer look at the Abraham Lincoln statue here at the park. The Abraham Lincoln statue designed by the same guy who created the Washington statue, right? Yes, Henry Kirk Brown, who in the mid-19th century was the, the greatest of our monumental sculptors uh, and really a pioneering figure in the very beginnings of what we later came to be th thought, think of as American naturalism. Um, you know, the portrayal of the figure as he might have appeared in life, as opposed to, say, uh, a dulcet, white marble classical version of our American hero. Let's get a closer look at that Lincoln statue down the road here. Now, it's quieter here. We hear more birds in this section of the park, and right before us now is Abe, good old Abe Lincoln. This Abe Lincoln um, was the first one created after the Civil War uh, as a full standing sculpture. Lincoln is shown it standing, um, uh, holding a, a rolled up a scroll. It, it, it could be the Emancipation Proclamation. No one seems to know. Um, with a very somber uh, and reflective look upon his face. There is one more statue in this park that we need to talk about, another major statue, and that is the statue of Gandhi. So let's go take a look at that statue. Here we are now in front of a statue, a statue that has its own garden. This is the statue of Gandhi here at Union Square Park. Yes, um, and this area 
uh, where Gandhi stands is one of the reason adjuncts to the park, part of the 1986 redesign, which made the park so much more friendly and created space for the green market and for all of these artists and musicians and the street theater and so on that we see. Um, and I think the metaphor of Gandhi as, as a man with a staff um, on, on the journey and with this marvelous expression on his face, this, this small kind of inward-looking smile that he was so famous for, this sense of, the, of, 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 of a man thinking always about his next step, about the course of his life and destiny, is really so wonderful. And a, and a great contrast to the other statuary in the park, all of which is American-centered, and also in one form or another, all commemorative of, of war, uh, and I, I think one of the other connections for the for the, for the Gandhi statue to Union Square uh, is that that like Lincoln at the other end, he became a martyr to the, the things that he believed. He was another uh, great leader who had brought peace at ter- terrible cost to himself and others, uh, only to be murdered by by those who who uh, re- preferred the, a path of violence and repression. Cal Snyder is a cultural historian right here in New York City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. We're also now on Facebook and Twitter, listed as WFUV's Cityscape. Sign up and become a fan and follower. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. Must be Gonna take a walk. And you just square, you never know Where you're gonna find it, you gotta run, 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 run Take the dragon too Run, 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 run Take the dragon you Hey, what you do?